open your Bibles at Genesis chapter 9. It's been a, it's a blessing to return to Genesis uh, again on Sunday mornings. Uh, we got as far as chapter 9 verse 17 last year. <clears throat> and the last message that we saw was of Noah and his family coming out of the ark to enjoy the blessed life in the new world. <clears throat> a new world that was characterized by God's merciful promises. No more additional curse, no more universal floods, no more interruption to the cycle of nature. Not only was the new world characterized by God's merciful promises, but the new world was also characterized by God's gracious blessings, the blessing of marriage and children, the blessing of food and health, the blessing of government as a minister, administer of justice. And then as a token of God's continuing mercy and grace, God made a covenant with all creation and provided a visible sign as a perpetual reminder, and that is a rainbow. A beautiful rainbow to remind us of God's perpetual grace and mercy. <clears throat> this is the new world that Noah and his family stepped into. And as we come to verse 18... <clears throat> Their new life in this new world is about to begin. The life of post-flood humanity on the earth is about to begin. The great flood is over, which drowned the whole human race except eight souls. All God-rejecting sinners were swept away into eternal judgment. And now it's a new beginning, a fresh start, a new day dawns for eight people who comprise the human race. Prominent in their minds and certainly visible all about them is the knowledge of the devastating impact of sin. The flood literally changed the face of the earth. They must have felt like they were now living on a completely different planet. All about them, everywhere they looked, there was abundant evidence of catastrophic judgment and death, overarched by God's gracious and merciful rainbow. So they step into a new world. <clears throat> Certainly, if there's anything in their mind, it is now that they, they want to do everything they can to avoid the things that brought upon the earth such devastation as they have just recently survived. And there must have, been, there must have been some hope and eagerness about this new humanity that they were going to build. Perhaps they could build some kind of paradise, maybe, with all the wicked people gone from the earth. Maybe they could recover Eden. Maybe that they, they could start and establish and build some kind of utopian society and yet it was not to be <clears throat> you see there was one thing that didn't drown in the flood and that was sin sin was riding in the ark in the nature of Noah and his family and sin survived in them it was a new world <clears throat> but the same old humanity. Here we have an old man, Noah, 
Bible reading. And in our Bible reading, we have a young man, Ham, young relatively speaking. And here we read a sad story of their iniquity. And therefore, what the Bible says is true. Sin reigned from Adam. Once Adam sinned, sin became the master of human life. It became the monarch of humanity, spread through all the earth, through every single person. And the judgment that God brought about on the face of the earth when he drowned all humanity didn't drown sin. And that sin brought tragedy into Noah's family. Tragedy firstly on account of Noah's sin and then secondly tragedy on account of his son Ham's sin. Read about that in verses 8 and 23. <clears throat> it is sad that the account of Noah's extraordinary life concludes with a scene that embarrasses him on account of his sin. Now the story begins well enough in verse 20. Noah began to be an husbandman. He took up farming. Not much <clears throat> market for building arcs anymore. Not going to need a big one like that ever again. Better do something different. Took up farming. And in that he followed in the footsteps of his father Lamech. If you go back to chapter 5 it tells us that he was a farmer. And he planted a vineyard, it says, verse 20, verse 21, and he drank of the wine. Now it takes years for vines to be tended to produce suitable grapes. And so evidently, Noah had labored as a farmer for some time after the flood. Now this is the first mention of wine in scripture. But wine making was certainly practiced before the flood. The days before the flood were characterized by corruption and violence. Genesis 6 verse 11 tells us they were days when people were eating and drinking, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 17. And no doubt drunkenness was very much a factor in the wickedness that plagued the pre-flood earth. Noah certainly knew what too much fermented wine can do. He certainly knew what too much fermented wine would do to him. And yet verse 21 says that he drank of the wine and was drunken and was uncovered in his tent. Righteous Noah lay passed out in a drunken stupor on the floor of his tent naked. Bob has a lot to say about wine and repeatedly condemns drunkenness. Drunkenness is only condemned in the scriptures. Proverbs 20 verse 1, Proverbs 23, 9 into 21, verses 29 to 35, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 11, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 15, and furthermore in the New Testament, Romans 13, 13, 1 Corinthians 6, 10, Ephesians 5, 18. The Bible doesn't condemn growing or eating of grapes or even drinking grape juice. Grapes and raisins and wine were important elements in the diet of Eastern peoples. In fact, in the Old Testament, grape juice was considered a blessing from God, a gift from God, and it was even used in some of the sacrifices. But Noah misused God's good gift. 
He allowed the grape juice to ferment and he drank of the wine and was drunken and he was uncovered in his tent. Now some commentators have tried to make excuses for Noah. For example, Franz de Litz says, quote, In ignorance of the fiery nature of wine, Noah drank and was drunken and was un uncovered in his tent. But in reality, Noah wasn't ignorant. He's over 600 years old now. And this event takes place sometime after the flood. It takes some time to produce vineyards, to produce grape juice. He was a seasoned man of the soil. He knew what wine could do. He was no helpless victim. He passed out because of excessive drinking of fermented wine. Noah had wrought his own degradation. As a matter of fact, where it says he was uncovered, the Hebrew expression is actually reflexive, which emphasizes that he uncovered, he uncovered himself. Emphasized. He was so utterly inebriated that he stripped himself naked and passed out. And having uncovered himself in that way, he therefore covered himself with shame and disgrace. Both his drunkenness and his aberrant nakedness were shameful. And the two often go together. It's a fait accompli, folks. It's always been that way back then as it is now. The more the alcohol goes down, the more the clothes come off. Likewise, the connection between drunkenness and sexual sin is seen frequently in the scripture, just as the two are connected in society today. Alcohol isn't a stimulant, it's a narcotic. And when the brain is affected by alcohol, the person loses control, self-control. <clears throat> At least, we might say that Noah was in his own tent when this happened and not out in public. But when you consider that Noah was a, had been a preacher of righteousness, and when we consider not just what he was, but also what he had done, that is, build an ark to the saving of his household, when we consider those sorts of things about this great man, this sin becomes more disturbing and heartbreaking. You notice that the Bible makes no attempt to make excuses for this embarrassment. And here we see the honesty of Scripture. It's a virtue that marks out the Bible as being God's own word. A merely human document would pass over such details which humiliates its heroes. But the Bible was not written to glorify God's people. It was written to remind us of the pervasiveness of sin and the problem of sin. It was written to warn us against doing the same things. As Spurgeon said, God never allows his children to sin successfully. There's always a price to pay. Twice it is recorded that Abraham lied about his wife and his son Isaac did the same thing, followed his bad example, and that caused trouble for both of them. Moses was a veteran leader who fell into sin out of frustration and anger with God's wayward people. The result of that was that he lost the privilege of entering into the promised land. Joshua jumped to conclusions and ended up Defending the enemy, that caused problems. David was one of history's greatest heroes of faith, yet indulged in adultery with Bathsheba, conspired to murder her husband, 
And as a consequence of that, the sword never departed from David's house. Brethren, beware. Let us beware. Noah probably didn't plan to get drunk and shamelessly expose himself, but it happened just the same. And his example proves that any one of us can fall into sin just the same, even if we don't plan to. Brethren, need to beware. Noah's folly here is recorded to make us wise. His sorry example demonstrates that people in their prime, even people in their older age, are sometimes overtaken by sensualities that previously and for years and years and years they have avoided. The tendency for older people is to be dismissive. You know, I'm too old now for that to be a problem or a temptation to me. The temptation is to uh, ease up when we get older or when the conflict lessens. When Noah was building his ark, all the world against him was, all the world was against Noah. He faced the scorn. He faced the threats. He faced the mockery straight up. But now, years later, in his vineyard, among his own people, people who needed no proof of his virtue, he relaxed. One Bible commentator says that Noah was not the only man who has walked uprightly and kept his garments unspotted from the world so long as the eyes of men were upon him, but who has lain uncovered on his own tent floor when they thought Noah was looking. We can become so careless in our home lives that we completely forego spiritual disciplines around people that we trust. All too often the walls of our homes witness irritabilities and anger and slanderous words and laziness and sensualities that if the walls could speak would testify against us. Brethren, let us beware the fact that Noah fell into sin proves that all may fall prey. In Genesis 6 through 9, Noah is revealed as one of the greatest men of history. His account begins in glowing terms. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. How is it possible for such a person would to disgrace himself as Noah did with his wine? Well, the answer is that like Adam before him, Noah was subject to sin's influence and could fall prey to temptation. Noah's sin is particularly revealing as a warning to Christians. Well, no doubt Noah had sinned before. He was still a man of, a man of eminent faith and notable achievements. Second Peter 2.5 describes him as a preacher of righteousness. But past success does not guarantee future godliness for anyone. Perhaps Noah had become overconfident. Perhaps personal discouragement led to self-pity and indulgence. Perhaps he was enjoying the good life, indulging in all the good things that God had given richly to enjoy, but he became careless. Perhaps no time to pray. Perhaps no need to pray. 
Brethren, let us take good heed to the warnings of God's word. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Now, as significant as Noah's sin was, the primary offence in this passage is committed by his son. Verse 22 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Verse 22 says that Ham saw his father's nakedness during the drunken stupor. And this was no accidental glance. The Hebrew word for saw signifies looking intently. It implies that he gazed with some satisfaction. Ham took some kind of perverse delight in the spectacle of his aged father sprawled out in the tent. And he took perverse pleasure in exposing his father's follies to his brethren. His actions here are one of amusement and mockery and ridicule. Sin was alive and well in Noah and also in his offspring. Should Ham have entered his father's tent without an invitation? Did he call his father and receive no answer? Did he wonder if Noah was sick or, sick or perhaps even dead? Did he even know that his father had been drinking wine? These are questions that the text does not answer. So it's useless for us to speculate about those. But one thing is absolutely certain. Ham was disrespectful to his father in what he did. If we dissect the sin of Cain, we might find several layers to it. Perhaps it wasn't even his fault that he found Noah in a drunken stupor. But instead of showing respect to his exposed father, he took some kind of snickering delight in the spectacle of his aged father sprawled out naked in the tent. It was some kind of sexual voyeurism. Now, it would have been wrong for and wicked for Ham to take pleasure in anyone in such a state, but how much worse his own father. This then is a case of gross disrespect for a parent. Now it's true that God hadn't yet given the commandment through Moses to honour thy father and thy mother, but surely the impulse is natural to children. It should have been present in Cain's heart. There's a serious breach here of the hierarchical order in creation. Ham desecrated the filial relationship sinning both against his father and against God. He thought nothing of increasing his father's shame by spreading the news of it. How people respond to the sin and embarrassment of others is an indication of character. How people respond to the sin and embarrassment of others is an indication of their character. Ham could have peeked into the tent, quickly summed up the situation, covered his father, say nothing about it to anyone, or perhaps privately to his father afterwards. Dad, I think you've got a problem. Instead, he enjoyed the sight and then told his two brethren, and in so doing, in effect, 
further uncovered his father's nakedness. How people respond to sin and embarrassment of others is an indication of their character. Well, Ham's wickedness in verse 22 is in complete contrast with the dignified response of his brothers, verse 23. Shem and Japheth, it says, took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. It's interesting where it says they took a garment. The Hebrew text literally reads, they took the garment. And what it seems is that Ham had collected his father's discarded garment from the tent and brought it and showed it to his brothers. And the brothers then take the same garment, the same garment, and use it to cover their father. The scriptures here take great care to show that the two brothers did not see their father's nakedness. The awkwardness of the scene is mirrored by the repetition of that word backward, describing both their movement and the turning of their embarrassed faces. We imagine Shem and Ham walking slowly backwards, holding the garment between them, and then at the appropriate time, in laying the garment behind them, they respectfully covered their father's nakedness, having taken care not to set their eyes on him. And this awkward but respectful procedure showed not only honour to their father, but perhaps more importantly showed reverence toward God. And I say that because what they did in covering Noah's nakedness has monumental spiritual implications because they were the the actions of God. They were imitating God. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? And the shame of their nakedness was before them. Genesis 3.11 says, Unto Adam and also to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. And now Shem and Japheth cover Noah's sin and and, and nakedness. In other words, the sons of Noah, Ham on the one hand and Shem and Japheth on the other are representatives of two groups of mankind. Those who, like Adam and Eve, who with God's help have had their nakedness, shame covered, and those like Ham who make no attempt to cover nakedness, even shamelessly exposing it. To the one group there will be blessing, to the other there will only be a curse. And so right here we learn the great demarcation that divides all humanity. Those that are blessed in that their sins have been covered, and those who are still under a curse because their sin lay uncovered. And years and years and years later, The beatitude of King David voices the divine reality. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But not only do Shem and Japheth wonderfully demonstrate what God does for us to cover our guilt and shame, but they also provide a wonderful example of what Christians should do when they encounter the shameful sin of fellow believers. 
Yes, there are occasions when sin is so public, of such a public nature, that it requires a public response in the church, in the preserving of Christ's honour. But especially when we encounter private failings and embarrassing flaws in others' character, we should, as it were, walk backwards in the footsteps of Noah's godly sons, seeking to avoid noting and emphasising and publicising the shame of others. When Shem and Japheth covered Noah's nakedness with the garment, so Peter wrote, Above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. And in this way, we imitate the grace of God who sent his son to cover our sins with his precious blood. And in covering another's sins, we not only show respect and dignity to those who are God's beloved people, but we also show gratitude for the gospel which has saved us and covered our sins. Instead of laughing at Ham, sorry, laughing with Ham, and going to see the humiliating sight, Shem and Japheth showed their love for their father by practicing Proverbs 10 verse 12. Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sins. They were prudent men. Proverbs 12 16 says, a prudent man covereth shame. They were loving men. Proverbs 17 9 says, he that covereth transgression seeketh love. Love doesn't cleanse sin, only the blood of Christ can do that. Nor does love condone sin, for love wants God's very best for others. But love does cover sin and doesn't go around gossiping and encouraging others to spread the bad news. It's just the antithesis of our gospel mission, which is to spread good news, forgiveness in Christ. When people sin and we know about it, Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 tells us our task is to help restore them in the spirit of meekness. It's been said that on the battlefield of life, Christians are prone to kick their wounded. It's often true. But before we condemn others, we better consider ourselves. For all of us are candidates for conduct which is unbecoming of a Christian. Let's come to our third point. When Noah awoke from his stupor, verse 24 tells us that he knew what Ham, his younger son, had done. Did he have recollections, vague recollections about what had happened? Did his other sons tell him? Did he know by intuition? Or perhaps even by revelation? The text here doesn't indicate. But we are told what he said. And interestingly, what he says here are the only recorded words of Noah in all the Bible. And in effect, these words may as well be his last will and testament because they are followed, verse 28 and 29, by account of his death. Noah addressed his three sons and spoke prophetically. 
He made predictions. He spoke blessings and curses that would shape the flow of world history. He described the future of his sons and their families on the basis of what he saw in their character. And in this respect, he did the same thing as Jacob did before he died. Jacob prophetically described the future of his sons on the basis of their character. Genesis 49, for example, verse 3, Reuben, he says, Thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. Come about his character, unstable as water, thou shalt not excel. Because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. A prophetic description of the future of his sons based upon character. Now it would seem as if this was the normal phenomena for the patriarchs. That is this, that before they died, they uttered inspired predictions concerning their sons based upon their character. Negative predictions were couched in the form of curse. Positive predictions take the form of blessing. Notice in verse 25, a curse <coughs> is pronounced on Canaan. It's a curse of enslavement. Verse 25, Noah said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Now note it is not Ham that is cursed. It's his son, Canaan, that is cursed. Ham actually had four sons. They are named for us over page chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim, and Put, and Canaan. Ham has four sons, but one of them is cursed, Canaan. Now, a curse in the Bible is a negative prophecy pertaining to temporal life. And in this life, Canaan and his descendants were to be, what's it say, servants of servants, the lowest of, the lowliest of servants. The, descendant of, the descendants of Canaan, that is the Canaanites, would be servants first to their own brethren, it says there, that is other Hamites, verse 25, and then to the Shemites, verse 26, and then finally to the Japhthaites, verse 27. So looking down the centuries, Noah predicted three times that the descendants of Canaan would become the lowest of servants. The Egyptians were Hamites. They were brethren of Canaan. And the Egyptians subjugated Canaan in the 15th century BC. According to Genesis 10, the Assyrians and the Babylonians were Hamitic people. And they dominated Canaan from the 8th to the 6th centuries BC. When the Semitic Israelites invaded Canaan in the 4th, 14th century, that was the second part of the prediction being fulfilled. And then during the divine conquest of Alexander the Great, they fell under the domination of the Japhthahites. Third aspect fulfilled. 
The prophecies of Noah are a time capsule of ancient history. Now the obvious question arises as to why Noah cursed Canaan instead of Ham. Ham being the one who committed the sin. And Bible scholars have pondered this question over many centuries. I've pondered it for several days. And some have suggested that in some way Canaan may have, must have participated with Ham in shaming Noah. Either he was personally involved with his father's sin or he was the one who first of all saw the situation and told his father about Noah. But neither of those theories have the slightest support in the text of Scripture. But more careful scholars point out four different considerations that I think at least help us understand why Canaan and not Ham came under Noah's curse. First consideration. Noah would have no doubt realised that God had previously blessed his three sons back in chapter 9 verse 1. That being the case, that these three men were blessed of God, how then would it be appropriate for Noah to pronounce a curse upon one of them? Perhaps that's a consideration. Therefore, second consideration, as Ham had sinned as a son, so Noah would curse Ham through his son. In other words, so that the punishment mirrored the crime. Charles Ryrie puts it this way, Ham is punished for his dishonour to his father by having a son who would dishonour him. Third consideration, at this stage in history, the character of fathers is mirrored in their sons and in subsequent generations. Gordon Wenham writes, and I quote, the Canaanites are notorious throughout the Old Testament for their aberrant sexual practices. Thus Noah, with prophetic foresight, may have anticipated Ham's sin would be reproduced in the line of Cain, Canaan. And a fourth consideration, which I think would be especially notable to Moses' original audience. Okay? We re- if, if we remember that Genesis was written by Moses during the wilderness wanderings, as they'd escaped from Egypt... Wandering through the wilderness during the 40 years, Moses writes the book of Genesis. His original readers are about to, sometime in the future, about to enter into the promised land which was occupied by none other than the sons of Canaan. The Israelites then were to be the instruments of God's judgment upon the wicked Canaanites because of all their sinful, wicked practices, their abominations. In other words, if we think of it this way, God's judgment upon a sinful world came via the flood. The the flood was God's instrument of universal judgment. And a similar way, God's judgment was going to fall upon the Canaanites via Israel. Israel was now to be the instruments of God's judgment. Thus Noah spoke prophetically in light of God's plans for, for redemptive history which included the carrying out of his judgment against Canaanite immorality. They were a people under God's curse. Four considerations that have some bearing. Now, at this point, 
Two errors I think we need to clear up. Number one, first error. First error is the teaching. There is the, the teaching that the descendants of Ham were a black race and that this so-called curse of Canaan is justification for the institution of slavery. Okay, that is a gross error. It's a shameful error. The descendants of Ham were not members of the black race but were Caucasian. So there's no basis for this so-called curse of Canaan for the institution of slavery. The second error takes this curse and applies it absolutely to each individual descendant of the Canaanite tribe so that such a person in the minds of, in the erroneous thinking of some, such a person is beyond redemption in any way ineligible for salvation under any circumstance. But that is certainly not the view of Scripture. Nor is it the view of Scripture that the opposite would be the case, that only those persons who are blessed, all of them are automatically saved. Now the Bible explicitly denies that every Shemite is guaranteed salvation. Meanwhile the Bible shows that Canaanites could be saved through faith in the God of Israel like, like Rahab was. Rahab, prostitute of Jericho, who finds herself in the genealogy of none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In other words, when the Bible proclaims that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, this means that salvation only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this means that all can be saved who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 26 we read of Noah's blessing upon Shem. Shem, of course, is the ancestor of Abraham, who is the founder of the Hebrew nation. So Noah here is pronouncing a blessing upon the Jewish people. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, God promised Abraham that the Jewish people would be enriched spiritually. And Paul explains that to us in, in, in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 9. God, Rome, Paul explains how God has blessed Israel spiritually, the Jewish people spiritually, and that in turn has been a blessing to the world. Through the nation of Israel, we have the knowledge of God. Through the nation of Israel, we have the word of God. Through the nation of Israel, we have the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you look at verse 26, Noah's prophecy seems to contain two blessings for Shem. First, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Notice Lord in capitals. Blessed be Jehovah, God of Shem. Jehovah is God's covenant name. So the language here suggests that Shem had a special relationship with with Jehovah, who was the, the God of covenant redemption. His descendants would preserve the knowledge of the true God, would disseminate that knowledge throughout the world. And perhaps there is a hint here that the promised seed, the Redeemer, would spring from the loins of Shem. But the second blessing on Shem is actually in verse 27. And it is this phrase. He shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Now the question in that verse is, who does the he refer to? 
Some regard the word he, third person pronoun, as a reference to Japheth. But others have offered sound reasoning for regarding he as God, Elohim. Elohim, God being the subject of the sentence. Now if we understand the verse that way, then Noah here would be making a prediction about the incarnation. God himself would come and dwell in the midst of the Shemites, which is what actually happened. The Apostle John declared that the divine word was made flesh and dwelt among us, tented among us. John chapter 1 verse 14. And then Noah pronounced a blessing upon Japheth. Japheth's blessing is stated concise in verse 27, God shall enlarge Japheth. Japheth was the ancestor of what we generally call the Gentile nations, which include the Indo-European people. Here we have some sort of play on words for the Hebrew name Japheth is very close to the Hebrew word for to enlarge. Now the Hamites built large civilizations in the east and the Shemites settled in the land of Cain and the surrounding territory. But the descendants of Japheth spread out much further than their relatives. They even reached Asia Minor and Europe and the Americas. These were people who would multiply and move into new territory. Noah, under inspiration of God, foresaw this expansion of the Jephthahites, Japhethites. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian, a descendant of Japheth, conquered Babylon and the Japhethites became masters of the world. And from that date to this, no Semitic or Hamitic race has succeeded in breaking world supremacy of the Japhethite people. The times of the Gentiles are still here. However, while the descendants of Japheth were successful in their conquests, when it came to things spiritual, they would have to depend upon Shem. Israel was chosen by God to be a light to the Gentiles. For salvation is of the Jews. And that's the salvation that we all need for we are all sinners like Noah like Adam sad to say for the most part the nation of Israel failed to be a witness to the Gentiles that the Gentiles might believe in the gospel and now the situation is quite the reverse the Gentiles are evangelizing Israel when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth he brought light to the Gentiles. And the apostles of the early church carried the gospel light to all the nations. Interestingly, the descendants of Noah's three sons were represented in the early church as being peoples who had been reached by the gospel. The Ethiopian eunuch, a descendant of Ham through Cush in Acts 8. Paul, a descendant of Shem, Acts 9, and Cornelius and his family, who were descendants of Jatha, Japheth, sorry, 
Acts chapter 10. Noah lived another three and a half centuries. And we have every reason to believe that he walked with God and served God faithfully. As far as the record is concerned, he fell once. He certainly repented and the Lord forgave him. Brethren, in our walk with God, we climb the hills and sometimes we descend into the valleys. As Alexander White used to say, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. As Noah and his family stepped out of the ark, they stepped out into a new world, the same old humanity, same old sinful hearts. Now, praise the Lord, forgiveness is possible by grace through faith. By the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness is possible because Jesus died for our offences. He was raised again for our justification. Praise the Lord for new beginnings. Praise the Lord for the indwelling Holy Spirit to help us. <clears throat> Praise the Lord, he's given us a complete Bible which are full of good warnings and vital instructions. Praise the Lord for the church, a community of believers whereby we edify one another, the church which helps to perfect the saints. Praise the Lord for his plan, justification, sanctification, ultimate glorification. Praise the Lord for the coming millennium. Praise the Lord for the new heavens and the new earth. No more sin. Praise the Lord for his grace, which is sufficient and abundant for us each day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the record containing scripture. Thank you that you have revealed your redemptive plan in sufficient detail for us. Thank you that we can see where we stand in history, where it's heading. I thank you that everything will be put under Christ's feet ultimately. Ultimately, there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, no more sin, completely glorified forever. Our Lord, thank you that we can look forward to that. In the meantime, thank you that you've placed us in the church and for the role that the church has to play in the redemptive history. Pray that you'd help us to bear the good news of the gospel, the good news of salvation from sin. Help us, Lord, to share the good news. Lord, there are times when people sin. We sin, I sin, others sin, we all sin. Now, that's bad news. And uh, Lord, we... Pray that you might help us to be on our guard, <clears throat> lest Satan get an advantage over us. Help us, Lord, to heed the good warnings of the word of God. In keeping of them, there is great reward. Lord, help us not to think that we have arrived, or think that we are <clears throat> beyond the reach of temptation. Most of the time, we sin when we don't plan to. And so, Lord, help us to take those diligent steps to plan not to to give all diligence, to be sober, to be vigilant, to be on guard to the wiles of the devil, not to be deceived ourselves about <clears throat> our own sinful hearts, the propensities that are there. Lord, help us not to yield to <clears throat> the pressures of the world, put ourselves in a position, position 
where it's easy to say yes to sin. Lord, I pray that you might help us in all of these ways and help us to be a blessing to one another. If someone's overtaken with a fault, Lord, help us to be spiritually minded about it and to seek to be a blessing, encouragement and help. Seek someone's restoration in the spirit of meekness. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>